your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And as you turn there, let me begin with a brief introduction to this book that we're going to be studying over the next three nights. Um, In fact, in just a few minutes, you're going to be singing, we're going to be singing a psalm together. I wonder if you realize just how amazing it is that you're going to get the privilege of singing one of God's divinely inspired songs. And I wonder if you realize how amazing it is that we together are the temple of God and in the very presence of God, you're going to get to sing one of his psalms and not be stoned to death for it. When we think of the book of Psalms, many of us think about the blessing it has been to us, maybe in our personal devotion times. Uh, We think of the benefits we've experienced in our prayer lives as we've read through the Psalms of David and found our own hearts echoing in prayer the words that he wrote. Uh, How many Christians over the centuries have found great sweetness for their souls as they read and prayed the Psalms of the Bible. But it's important to realize that the book of Psalms was not originally used in this way. The book of Psalms is the collection of those songs that were sung by the Levitical choir in the temple in Jerusalem. You see, for many years, God's special presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent. It was a valuable, artistically designed, ornate tent, but the tabernacle was a tent. And inside this tent, there was a veil, and behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was a box that carried, among other things, the Word of God, in particular, the two stone tablets given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, The lid of this box was called the mercy seat, and it was here that God promised to dwell in special power and glory. Now, Israel was made up of 12 tribes, and one of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were given the great privilege of being those appointed by God to minister to him before his presence. Only the high priest could go into the veil, and he only once a year. But the various priests would offer sacrifices. They would keep the incense burning before the Lord. They would instruct the people of God as they came to worship. The Levites were the guardians of the glory of God in Israel. But it wasn't until the time of David that singing began to have an important role in the worship of God at his house. And things had gotten really bad. You see, the Ark of the Covenant was no longer even in the tabernacle. The Philistines had captured it and taken it for a time. And Israel now has gotten the Ark back. And in 1 Chronicles 15, David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, many of you will remember he had sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem before, and things didn't go so well. So he's much more careful this time. He doesn't want anybody to get killed. And so with great reverence and great attention to God's law, David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, where he places it in a specially prepared tent. And it was at that time that David instructed the priests to fulfill their service to God 
And it was David who established that certain families of the Levites had the specially assigned role to sing to God. They would be the choir. They would be the singers in the presence of God. Now Solomon would later build the temple, and these Levitical families appointed by David continue to fulfill this role. Uh, This is why so many of the Psalms have instructions for the music director at the beginning of them. Instructions describing how that psalm is to be sung. You'll see words in the Psalms like a mascal or a mizmor or a tehillah. We aren't sure what those words mean. Okay? Um, we assume that Chenaniah, the first music director appointed by David in 1 Chronicles 15, he knew what those words meant. He may have even been the first person to start putting together this collection of psalms and to add in some of those musical notes. Uh, some psalms say things like, for the strings. Others say things like, for the harp. Some even specify the tune to be sung to, uh, the fawn, the, the rising of the sun. Uh, some of the psalms tell on which occasion that psalm is to be sung. These Levitical families appointed for music in the temple not only sang songs, but these families wrote songs as well. If you've read many of the Psalms at all, you'll be familiar with some of the Levitical families that were the musical families. The clan of Asaph, the clan of Korah, and then the clan of Heman and Ethan. These all produce Psalms that are now in our book of Psalms. Now, by the way, singing in the temple was a full-time job. 1 Chronicles 9.33 says, Now these, the singers... The heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites were in the chambers of the temple, free from other service, for they were on duty day and night. So choirs became a permanent part of the daily worship of God at the temple. And this is why a number of Levitical families had to be appointed. Uh, These men, and they were likely all men, also had homes that they lived in. They had families to care for. They had their own fields that needed to be sown and that needed to be reaped. And so different families took turns with the musical duty in the temple. Jewish tradition tells us that there was a daily song sung by the choir each morning when the drink offering was made, and then a certain psalm that was sung each night when the drink offering was made. Uh, On Sundays, morning and evening, they'd sing Psalm 24. Mondays, morning and evening, the choir would sing Psalm 48. Tuesdays, Psalm 82. Wednesdays, Psalm 94. Thursdays, Psalm 81. Fridays, Psalm 93. And on Saturday, the Sabbath in the Old Testament, they would sing Psalm 92. So when you're looking at the book of Psalms, know what you're looking at. You are looking at the songbook of the Levitical choir in the temple. Now make sure you get this. Only those few families among all of Israel were allowed to come into the temple and to sing these psalms. If you were a man from the tribe of Benjamin or Reuben or Judah, you were not allowed to do this. If you were a woman, you were not allowed to do this. Certainly the very thought of a Gentile, like most of us, coming and singing one of these psalms with the Levitical choir in the presence of the Lord, that was anathema. It could not happen. It should not happen. It must not happen. 
Uh, just as Nadab and, Ab- and Abihu, Aaron's sons, were struck down by God because they worshipped in a way different than he had ordered, so you too were likely risking your life if you tried to sneak your way into one of these choirs so you could sing these psalms in the presence of God. Why were these particular families allowed to sing before God in this way and not the others? Well, for the same reason that they were allowed to minister to God in all the other ways. They were chosen by God for this purpose. These priests had been set aside through a spiritual ritual of anointing. These families of the Levites had been pronounced clean by God for this work. And anyone else that sought to be a part of this work was unclean. They had not been set apart for this. Now, dear friends, do you understand what Paul was saying? I'm sorry, what Peter is saying when he says in 1 Peter 2, 5 that we Christians, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the veil has been torn down, and all who believe on Christ are now priests unto God. You haven't been anointed with the holy oil, but you've been anointed with what that oil always represented, namely the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have a new heart, and you've been cleaned by the blood of Christ. And you now make your own sacrifices, prayers, and praise to God. Jesus is our great high priest through whom we now come into God's very presence with our worship. By God's grace, you get the privilege of doing what thousands of Jews over generations longed to do but were forbidden to do. You get to sing psalms in the very presence of God. We together are God's temple. Yes, individual Christians, in a sense, are individual temples of God, but far more often the New Testament speaks of the gathered church as God's temple. When two or more are gathered in His name, there Christ is with His people in a special way. When we meet together for worship at our various churches, the stones of the temple are coming together, the church is being built, and then we get to be part of that choir that sings these songs before our God. I find this amazing. Jesus died, among other reasons, so that you and I could be a part of the choir that sings to God. Even some of us who croak like a frog get to be part of this choir. And therefore, how sweet the book of Psalms ought to be to us. Yes, we should study the Psalms. We should study them just like we're going to do at this conference. But let us not forget that the psalms were given to be sung. Let us sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And if you have to leave one of them out, let it not be the psalms. This is the great distinction between the psalms and all the other wonderful hymns of the Christian church. And the distinction is this. While God has raised up many godly people to write many wonderful hymns, none of those hymns are the word of God. None of those were inspired by the Holy Spirit. None of those were breathed out by His prophets. When we sing psalms, we are singing songs that come from the very heart and mind of God Himself. What's more, the psalms are wonderfully comprehensive. There are psalms about the mercy of God, and there are psalms about the wrath of God. There are psalms about the power and the might of Jesus Christ, and there are psalms about His tenderness and His meekness. 
There are psalms about the wonderful days in the Christian life, and there are psalms about the really hard days in the Christian life when we feel alone and depressed. There are psalms about the cross. There are psalms about the resurrection. There's even psalms about the ascension of Jesus. When was the last time you sang a hymn about the ascension of Jesus? The psalms cover everything. And so let us remember that we should not only study the psalms, but by the blood of Christ, we get to now sing the psalms from the heart to God. Now, I've taken too long in my introduction, so let's jump into Psalm 1. I'm only going to be able to give you an overview of this psalm tonight, but let's read together Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The book of Psalms is divided into five books. Psalms 1 through 41 make up book 1. And Psalms 1 and 2 are the introduction to book 1. After Psalms 1 and 2, all of the Psalms in the first book, 3 through 41, were written by David. They all declare at the beginning that they are Psalms of David. This is a collection of David's Psalms that comes to an end in Psalm 41 with this doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And that's how the book ends. We don't know who it was that put the book of Psalms together in the order that we now have them. Many believe that Ezra may have been the man responsible. We are not told who wrote this first psalm, but tradition holds that it was David. And the fact that it is included at the beginning of a collection of David's psalms certainly lends weight to that view. Psalm 1 is certainly a fitting choice to begin the book of Psalms. Imagine you were responsible for putting together a hymn book. It matters what hymn you choose as hymn number 1. What song do you think will best set the tone and the flavor for the rest of the songs in the book? Well, this psalm seems to have been chosen to be Psalm 1 because it puts special emphasis on the importance of delighting in and meditating on God's Word. This psalm puts before us the way of blessedness and the way of death. And in a sense, it calls on us to choose between the two. And if we choose the way of blessedness, as we should, we find that the way of blessedness is the way of delighting in God's law. The word law does not refer here to the first five books of the Bible alone, but to all of the word of God, including the Psalms themselves. Often in the Psalms, the word law will refer to all of the scriptures including not only the commands of God, but also the promises and the warnings and the historical stories all recorded for our benefit. This psalm calls us to spend our time in God's Word and to delight in God's Word and to meditate on God's Word. That's a very fitting way to begin a portion of Scripture that has been so precious 
to so many for so many centuries. We would do well to delight on the book of Psalms and to meditate on it. Spurgeon suggested that this psalm could be known as the preface psalm because it serves as the appropriate beginning to the rest of the book. It seems to me that verse 6 summarizes the whole psalm when it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That word way way literally means path. The, the righteous has a path that the Lord knows. The wicked has a path that will ultimately perish. And so another title for this psalm might be the psalm of two paths. The psalm of two paths. Uh, this theme of two different paths set before us, one that leads to life, the other that leads to death, one that leads to blessing, one that leads to condemnation. This is a very common theme in the Bible. Deuteronomy 11, beginning in verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. In Proverbs 4, the wise father talks to his son about the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Proverbs 4.11, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. 4.14 and 15, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. Proverbs 4, 18 and 19, But the path of the righteous is like a light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Proverbs 4 ends this way, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And then finally, Jesus himself speaks of these two paths. When he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. In Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3 are about the way of the righteous. Verses 4 and 5 are about the way of the wicked. And verse 6 sums up the whole psalm. Now what I want to do is briefly note four key truths in this psalm. Four key truths from Psalm 1. Number one, note that the righteous are truly blessed. The righteous are truly blessed. The first word of the psalm is the word blessed. The last word of the psalm is the word perish. The first word describes the condition of the righteous. The last word describes the fate of the wicked. That the righteous are blessed means that the favor of God is upon them. They are in a happy state. Outwardly, they are in a happy state in that God is their God. He is there to care for them, provide for them, protect them. Inwardly, the righteous are in a happy state because God gives them reason to have a deep-seated peace and joy even in the midst of severe troubles and trials. This blessedness is not a shallow happiness that's here one moment and gone the next. No, this blessedness is the favor of God resulting in a deep happiness that is not fickle, that does not go away even when you're in a difficult trial. The wicked have to deal with a heart that is never at peace, but the righteous have rest in their souls even in the hardest days. More than that, we see in verse 3 that God brings forth fruit from the lives of the righteous. Like a tree planted by a stream of water, the righteous man has an infinite supply of strength and nourishment from God. 
And so looking to God, good fruit springs forth from the righteous man in its season. Our lives go through seasons, don't they? Our lives go through seasons, and certain fruits are required for each season. In a season of suffering, we especially need to be producing endurance and patience. In a season of blessing, we need to be especially producing gratitude and praise to God. A young 20-year-old Christian, uniquely blessed by the Lord, may have wisdom beyond his years, but particularly it is an old age that the righteous can be expecting to produce wisdom and godly counsel and discernment. You see, this fruit is especially appropriate for that season of their lives. The righteous man is blessed in such a way that he produces good fruit fit for its season. That last statement in verse 3 is really astounding, is it not? In all that he does, he prospers. I don't think this refers mainly to financial prosperity or material prosperity or good health. I think it refers primarily to spiritual prosperity. It means that in everything this person does, he is prospering in his soul. Whatever the righteous man sets himself to do, no matter how large or how small the task, no matter whether it's in the home or in the workplace, whatever he does will be accompanied by spiritual fruit that will last into eternity. It doesn't mean that the project in the workplace is always going to be a shining success. But it does mean that God will use even the failures to develop greater patience, greater humility, greater faithfulness and integrity. Even in a person's failures, in a worldly sense, the Christian will later to, to be seen to have prospered spiritually. For the righteous man, every second of his life is blessing. For the righteous woman, every second of her life is blessing. Even the things that hurt now they will look back and see it was the blessing of God. The righteous are truly blessed. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is that the righteous delight in the things of God. Spurgeon says it well. The righteous man's footsteps are ordered by the word of God and not by the cunning and wicked devices of carnal men. The righteous man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't look to the, to the world. He doesn't look to the opinions of sinful men to know how he should live. Nor does he stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't seek fellowship with the ungodly and long to be counted among their number. Nor does he sit with scoffers. Indeed, a true Christian cannot rest and be comfortable around those who mock God. A true Christian cannot be comfortable around those who scoff at the things of God, who laugh at the people of God. Those things will grieve him, not delight him. They place a burden on him to stand up for God and the things of God. They place a, a burden on the righteous man to see those people saved. He has no delight in the ways of worldly men. So where is the delight of the righteous person? It is in the law of the Lord, in the law of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And this delight is seen in the fact that he meditates on the law of the Lord both day and night. This isn't some sheer duty that the righteous man feels obligated to do. And so he gets up in the morning and he reads for 30 minutes and he closes his Bible and he says, glad that's done. Check. No, he meditates on God's law because God's law brings delight to his soul. Here is a mark of a changed heart. Here is a mark of a Christian. 
No longer do the things of the world entice, but rather it is the teachings of the Word of God that now seem attractive and appealing. The righteous man has found a better fountain of wisdom, a better source of counsel than the opinions of men. He has found the very Word of God Himself, and it brings Him help in deep and lasting ways. Dear friends, my question to you at this point is this. Could it be that you are neglecting the Word of God? Or can you say that the Word of God is a precious jewel to you? Is the Word of God a firm foundation beneath your feet? There is no area of your life that the Bible is not sufficient to guide you, to teach you, to equip you. One of my favorite stories comes from the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Goodwin says he went to hear a Mr. Rogers, a, a traveling preacher. And uh, Mr. Rogers was known as being a, a very good preacher. And he had heard about this man. He went to hear him preach. And it just so happened that Pastor Rogers' subject that day was the Scriptures and how important the Scriptures are. And Goodwin tells us that Pastor Rogers was at the pulpit and he began impersonating God. And he said, well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible and you have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Will you use my Bible so? Well, then you shall have my Bible no longer. And Pastor Rogers, pretending to, to be God, takes the Bible away and begins to walk off the stage. And then he turns around and he impersonates the people crying out to God. He falls on his knees. Lord, whatever thou do to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children. Burn our houses, destroy our goods, but spare not the Bible. Take not away from us your Bible. Impersonating God again, he says, Say you so? Then I will try you a little longer. Here again is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it, whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more, live more according to it. Thomas Goodwin said by the time that sermon was over, the whole place was filled with tears as people were convicted about their neglect of the Bible. And he himself said that he went out and put his head on his horse's neck and wept for a quarter of an hour before he could find the strength to mount and ride home. Here is the godly man and the godly woman's secret to bearing good fruit. Their roots go deep in the Bible. They get their nourishment from the Bible every day. But note a third truth. I want us to see that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Do you see that in verse 6? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Part of what is being taught here is that God looks upon His people and He sees them as they walk the path of righteousness. He sees their faith and He sees their obedience. It's not perfect obedience. We're not, the righteous here are not perfect people. The righteous here are those who have been counted righteous in Christ and are living by faith and a desire to obey. But God looks and He knows the way of the righteous. He sees day in, day out, the life that they're seeking to live. He is with them in their trials. He is with them in their suffering. He is with them in their every difficulty. God's people and the path that they take is not foreign to Him. He knows fully the thoughts in their minds. He knows fully the feelings in their hearts. He knows fully the actions they take. 
Job 23.10, He knows the way that I take. When He has tried me, I shall come out as gold. But more is being said here simply than that God intellectually knows His people. Rather, this Hebrew word know is much weightier than that. It's the word used to speak of intimate familiarity. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. This word know is a word that often refers mainly to God's love. Here the psalmist is saying that God not only knows the way of the righteous, but He looks upon it with favor. He loves the way of the righteous, just as the ways of God are a delight to the righteous man. The righteous man's ways are a delight to God. God loves to see His commandments obeyed. He delights to see His own character being reflected in the lives of His people. It isn't just that He cognitively knows the way of His people. He loves His people as they seek to follow Him. He is eager to care for them. He is going to hold them up and He is going to bless them. Well, fourth, note that the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the way of the righteous and He rewards and blesses them. But He also has a response to those who take the wicked path. The wicked will perish. In verse 4, the wicked are compared to chaff that the wind blows away. Chaff is the dry, protective covering over the seeds of grain. Wheat farmers in ancient times would take their wheat to the threshing floor and they would beat the wheat and the chaff would be broken up and carried away with the wind so that only the seeds remain. The chaff was considered good for nothing. It was easily blown away. In the same way, the wicked on the day of judgment will be easily carried away by the wrath of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist said of the Lord Jesus Christ, His winnowing fork is in His hand. He will clear His threshing floor. He will gather His wheat into His barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. If the entire human race is looked upon as a harvest for God, those who trust God and seek to walk in God's ways, these are the righteous, the wheat, which He takes into His barn, into His home, into heaven. But those who reject the ways of God, those who resist God, those who walk in their own ways, they are the wicked, the chaff, and they will be destroyed. Verse 5 of our psalm says that the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor in the congregation of the righteous. On earth, our churches will always be a mixture of righteous and wicked. We will always be a mixture of those who have truly changed hearts that love Christ and those who don't really know what it is to love Christ. They still live in their sins. After judgment, however, in the new heavens and the new earth, the wicked will have no place. There will be no mixture anymore. The righteous will live in the place of eternal light. The wicked will be far away in the place of eternal darkness. I wonder if there are any here tonight whom the Bible would describe as chaff. I wonder if there are any here tonight who need to turn from living your own life your own way and submit to Christ and be saved. Jesus is a sufficient Savior for you if you will turn from your sins and if you will follow Him. But note that it's not just the wicked who will perish. Verse 6 says that the very way of the wicked, the path of the wicked will perish. You see, after the day of judgment, 
You will be able to search the far reaches of the new heavens and the new earth. You will not find the path of wickedness there. There will be no rebellion against God anywhere on earth once the earth has been made new. There will be none living in impatience. There will be none living in greed. There will be none living in self-worship or hatred. The way of the righteous will have been blessed, but the way of the wicked will have utterly and forever perished. And there will be no more wickedness anymore, anywhere. Sin will be no more. Okay, two implications for you. These are very quick, just a moment. Number one, this psalm encourages you in your relation to His Word. This psalm teaches you that it is always best when we can approach the Word of God with delight. And so I wonder, is this how you come to the Word of God? Whether it's in your private Bible study, whether it's with others in a small group, whether it's coming to the time of preaching, do you approach the Word of God as a feast to be enjoyed? Are you staggered? by how amazing it is that God would bring such a treasure to you. Here are things into which angels long to look, and they're being revealed to you. The great physician knows your every need, and he has provided you not only with a diagnosis, but with a cure for every ailment of your soul. And everything you need to know, it's in the book. Do you approach the book with delight? Is it precious to you? When we cannot approach God's word with delight, let us lay hold of the word of God and not let it go until it has delighted us. Remember Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon would get up each morning, open up the Bible and pray, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. And his commitment was that he was going to read his Bible until God had blessed him and not put it down until then. Friends, let us learn to lay hold of God in prayer as we read the Bible and not let go of Him until He has blessed us through His Word. Certainly, we should seek to meditate on God's Word. Don't just read the verses. Don't just attend the Bible study. Don't just hear the sermon and then leave it all behind and walk away. We are to have God's Word in our thoughts. We are to meditate upon God's Word. Said one man, Meditation chews the cud and gets the sweetness and the nutritive virtue out of the word and into the heart and into the life. This is the way the godly bring forth much fruit. Two people can hear the word of God, one be changed by it, one not be changed by it. Why? Because one person walked away and left what he heard there. The other chewed the cud, meditated on the word of God, and the Spirit blessed it and gave him help. And then second, this psalm gives you much content for your prayers. Pray that you would be counted among the righteous and not among the wicked. Pray that your heart would not be too inclined to the counsel of other people and that your heart would be more inclined to the counsel of the Word of God. Pray that your heart will find true delight in the Bible. Pray that your feet will take the path of blessedness, the path of the Scriptures. Let us pray that God will make us doers of His Word and not hearers only. Amen? Would you pray with me? So, Father, we thank You for this book of Psalms, and we thank You for this first psalm, and how it challenges us not to neglect the Word of God and not to turn to ungodly counsel. Instead, Father, it challenges us to delight in your word 
and to draw our wisdom and our strength and our nourishment there. Father, we thank you for the promise that you're going to bless us if we have hearts to do that. Give us the hearts to do that, we pray. Father, we ask that you would bless the remainder of this conference and that the book of Psalms would become even more precious to us than it has been before. But we ask more than that, that you would become more precious to us, more valuable to us, more of a treasure to us than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.